You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We arrived in an undignified heap of witch and vampire. Matthew was underneath me, his long limbs bent into an uncharacteristically awkward position. A large book was squashed between us, and the force of our landing sent the small silver figurine clutched in my hand, sailing across the floor. Are we in the right place? My eyes were screwed shut, in case we were still in Sarah's hop barn in 21st century New York, and not in 16th century Oxfordshire. Even so, the unfamiliar sense told me I was not in my own time and place. Among them was something grassy and sweet, along with a waxen smell that reminded me of summer. There was a tang of wood smoke, too, and I heard the crackle of a fire. Open your eyes, Diana, and see for yourself. A feather-light touch of cool lips brushed my cheek, followed by a soft chuckle. Eyes the color of a stormy sea looked into mine from a face so pale it could only belong to a vampire. Matthew's hands traveled from neck to shoulders. Are you all right? After journeying so far into Matthew's past, my body felt as though it might come apart with a puff of wind. I hadn't felt anything like it after our brief time-walking sessions at my aunt's house. I'm fine. What about you? I kept my attention fixed on Matthew rather than daring a look around. Relieved to be home. Matthew's head fell back on the wooden floorboards with a gentle thunk, releasing more of the summery aroma from the rushes and lavender scattered there. Even in 1590, the old lodge was familiar to him. Deborah Harkness teaches history at the University of Southern California. Her most recent scholarly work is The Jewel House, Elizabethan London, and the Scientific Revolution. Her first novel in the All Souls series was A Discovery of Witches. Her new novel is Shadow of Night. Thank you for joining me, Deb. Thank you. Lovely to be here. Deb, this is such a wonderful book, and you just take us right into the the story. There's no prelude. So I want our readers to know and our listeners to know that go back, listen to the other interview, read uh, Discovery of Witches first, because we're going straight into the past. We're going straight into the past. I always told people that the second book would pick up right where the first one left off, and I was telling the truth. They pick up their foot at the end of the first book, and when they put it down again, we are in book two and the past. This is a fascinating book, and one of the things I loved about this book is that you have so much fun, and we as readers have so much fun with a historian who finds herself actually back in history, and it ain't what she expects it to be, and she's not quite as competent at uh, dealing with it as she should be. That's right. I think a lot of historians don't do history that's particularly useful from the standpoint of daily life. There are some who are social historians and could could really, you know, know uh, about things like what utensils were used at dinner and what colors were called and so forth. But Diana's a historian of science. She she doesn't really know those things. And I have to say that part of her frustration uh, was really a kind of mirror of my own frustration when I was starting the process of writing Shadow of Night and kept coming up with things I didn't know. I, what is the relative velocity of a horse at a trot in a canter in November in 1590 on this stretch of road? Nobody taught me that in graduate school. So there were all kinds of little 
gritty details of life that I needed to look up, do research, whatever. And there were some some moments when I just wanted to tear my hair out. And I thought, this is really hard to live in 1590. It's also must have been really fun, though, to write about it. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about architecting this book as opposed to the other book. The other book had a kind of a feel of the supernatural revealed underneath the everyday world. Mm-hmm. This book is is really a work of historical fiction with a really interesting vision of time travel slotted into it. Yeah, I, you know, for me, uh, when I th- thought of this portion of Diana and Matthew's story, it was really important to me, actually, first of all and foremost, to have a set of sort of logical parameters that actually had to do with a single man's life and what we knew about it. And that man was Matthew Royden, this very shadowy figure associated with a very famous group of men. But Matthew Royden was this character who was always sort of on the outskirts of a group that included Walter Raleigh and the Duke of North, the Earl of Northumberland and included Christopher Marlowe, George Chapman, and then this man we don't know much about. And so I used the sort of end markers of the story, the events that we, such as we knew it, of, of Matthew Royden's life. And then filling in from that, I needed to sort of lay down a sort of that historical layer. I then needed to think about how the supernatural element of demons, witches, and vampires that I'd created in the first book might play out in that life story. So which which figures from Matthew Royden's life could be a demon or a witch or a vampire? Needed to then fill in it with other characters as, as needed and as occasions warranted it. There were the actual historical events, bigger historical events happening at the time that needed to get laid into it. And then finally, we end up with these time travel questions. And that was one where I did a lot of reading and came away with the theory that, you know what, time travel, it's still a theory. We don't actually know how this works. There's multiple conflicting information. But as of at least this morning, no one has done it yet. So not that we know of. Not that we know of. So I uh, got to take um, elements mostly from quantum physics and from multiverse theory and the kind of ideas of a branching time frame rather than a single linear time frame and um, sort of play with that theory and and apply it to this world. And, and hopefully it worked pretty well. This is a lot of fences to put up before you even start writing. I'm imagining like this really complicated maze and you have to kind of write inside the maze. Well, you know, I am not... Uh, I'm not a big outliner, mm. it must be said. So for me, it felt very organic. You know, I would, I re, rewrote and rewrote and rewrote, I'd say the first maybe five or six chapters a lot. And it was because first the book actually, the, my first draft, they actually, the book picked up in London. And I got about three chapters in and thought, no, this isn't going to work. She's never going to pass in London as and it would be far too difficult to hide this woman in London. So back to the old lodge we went and started laying it down again. And I'd literally, I'd hit a question or a problem, and then I'd go have a think. And then I'd come back and write, go a few more paragraphs, and then it would be, you know, oh, the cutlery or, you know, oh, the time travel. So it actually came about um, much more organically, but it took me probably about five months to write the first five chapters. And then after that, there was a lot of momentum and, and things were in place. So I kind of figure it out by writing it in a way. 
Now, you talked about this group of men and that Matthew Royden was on the fringes of. It's a real group of men. Uh, Tell us a little bit about the School of Night. So it is. So the School of Night uh, it is a, gr- a real group of men. It's a group that was sort of, we, we've noticed in the history books that they were often in each other's company. There's a lot of actual debate in the historical community about whether or not the School of Night is a good name for them. It's based on a line from Shakespeare. Uh, it's a line from Shakespeare that may not even actually have been th- written that way in the uh, in one of the iterations. And it is, uh, a, people have said, you know, they, they were, it's not like they were really a tight band of, of friends. But of course, in my story, I chose the theory that they were a, a tight band of friends. And it included poets, playwrights, um, men who seem to have atheist tendencies or beliefs at a time when really in the Christian West, you believed in God. Atheism was not something most people could wrap themselves around as a concept. Um, They were proponents of the new science. Um, They were known for having very dangerous positions at court. They were ambitious men. They were young men. They were very powerful men. And uh, so given sort of the prominence of the group, it's one of the other reasons why somebody like Matthew Royden is so fascinating, because we know so much about so many of them why don't we know more about him? What was he hiding? Uh, so, Now, did Matthew Royden precede the first book? I mean, did you research him before the first book to create uh, the Matthew that we know? That is a great question. Yes. In fact, I wrote my master's thesis on a poem written by a member of the School of Night, and that poem's name was The Shadow of Night. So that's where the title comes from. And Matthew Royden was always sort of one of those hanging chads of my master's thesis. He was one of those figures that I I kept running into but couldn't find out much about. And when I was thinking about, you know, know, where for Discovery of Witches, you know, where do all these creatures hang out and why don't we see them and how don't we, how don't, do we not pay any attention to them? Um, I kept being reminded of that Matthew Royden guy from my master's thesis. And I thought, he'd be a vampire. I thought, he'd be a vampire. So actually, Matthew Claremont's character was shaped by what I knew about Matthew Royden. And I, the things I knew and suspected about Matthew Royden, I brought into the 21st century for Discovery of Witches. So Matthew Royden is... The, the character concept for Matthew Claremont. Reverse engineered. Wow. Reverse, and I guess it is reverse engineering. <laughs> it sounds terribly clever when you put it that way, but again, it it was very organic. Um, uh, he, I just thought, yes, that explains that. Matthew Royden could have been a vampire and kind of giggled, but then it helped me to figure out what kind of men he would be friends with in the modern era, era uh, what kind of work he would do what kinds of preconceptions he might have about things, all of those elements could factor into creating the character Matthew Claremont based on who he was in 1590. He has some entertaining friends. First and foremost, Christopher Marlowe. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering what kind of reaction you've got to your characterization of Christopher Marlowe. Well, I think everyone came into Shadow of Night thinking, oh, how fabulous. We're going to meet Christopher Marlowe, and he's going to be a really fun guy. And I have to tell you, 
he was a genius. And like many geniuses, he would not have been a nice guy to hang around with. He would have had a lot of sharp edges, been very prickly. So I'm getting a little bit of, but I always loved Christopher Marlowe. He seemed so much fun. And you've made him into somebody not very nice sometimes. And I think, yeah, yeah, because I don't think he would have been really nice sometimes. I don't think any of these people would have been nice by our definition of nice. You know, the 16th century was a competitive, cutthroat world. I always tell this to my students. We all think we'd love to go back to the court of Elizabeth I. A modern person would last about 12 minutes in the court of Elizabeth I because the survival skills that they needed to survive, to make it in that world, we just don't have in the same way. So, uh, yeah. Um, and, of course, that was one of the great challenges with Matthew is that uh, he wasn't going to be able to be the same Matthew Claremont in 1590 as he could be in you know, 2009. Um, and that's going to be a challenge for some of the readers, too, to see what happens when Matthew essentially goes back uh, to the past. As uh, a character we meet much, much later in the narrative says, uh, they, there's a tendency to go native. Yeah, there is a tendency to go native. And we all experience that. You know, one of the things that I love to do with these characters and with this world is to remind readers that they're, these are not creatures who are devoid of humanity. And when we go back home, I don't know about the rest of you, but when I go back home, I fall into old habits really, really easily. So I find myself, you know, my mother says, shall I do your laundry? Yeah, okay. And at this moment, I'm sitting on the couch with a pint of ice cream and a spoon watching television. And I think, I've, regret, I've gone right back to being 17 again in my house. And, you know, I've lived a lot less years than Matthew. So going, you know, for Matthew, going native um, is both uh, not surprising and yet has some pretty surprising consequences. You have a lot of fun with the plotting in this novel. And I love where we get these collisions of um, the stories that the characters have to tell to get by because they're lying constantly, and we'll get to that. But then we have the stories the characters tell, this, the history that they're embedded in, and the story of your novel, in within your novel, and this collision of these different kinds of stories, is it's really enchanting. Well, thank you. Um, I, I do think that Shadow of Night is, in a lot of ways, it really is a more complicated and demanding story. The first book takes place largely, it's a story of two people falling in love over 40 days. This is the story of two people being dropped back into a moving stream of history. And it takes place over months and months and months. So like real life, life outside the bubble of a, of a budding romance is more complicated. This is one of the things we all discover when we first take our beloved home to meet mom and dad and the family and Aunt Susie and Uncle Ernie for the first time that, wow, you know, life is complicated and things happen. And uh, because I'm so interested in trying to write a novel that is an experience, it's not just something that you read and breeze through, but you sort of take root and live in the world for a little bit. I wanted this to really feel like 
it was real and that the characters were really having to be challenged and really develop and their love would, was really going to have to grow and be tested in real ways that, that felt authentic. Well, I think one of the ways you do this is just this wonderful details. There's so many interesting aspects of history that you reveal by virtue of your character being a historian, going back in history. And it just seems like the the research for the project must have been really daunting. You, I don't think you can go on the internet and get a lot of the stuff you found. And more importantly, I'd like you to talk about taking all the research you did and details and facts over here, which is like 10 volumes of books, and giving us a nice, this wonderful, dense, packed story full of fun and, and excitement. Well, in a lot of ways, I've been doing the research for this book without knowing it since I went to Mount Holyoke College in 1982. So one of the things that happens when you're a historian is you accumulate lots of info only a tiny fraction of which you can actually use at a given moment. And the rest of it exists in corners of our mind and file tubs and on old, you know, yellowed index cards. And I got to deploy an awful lot of that in in this book. And so it is also a challenge, though, in that having essentially been researching this period in some way, shape, or form since 1982, I couldn't let the history overwhelm the story. They had to be kept in a balance. And you're right. If I had told you everything I knew about 1590, it would be 6,000 pages, not 590-some. And the way that I really started to treat the historical elements was to see them as uh, as both a, a structure, an architecture about, you know, again, the, the facts as we know them of Matthew Royden's life, what's happening at the time, that all had to work and satisfy me as a historian. And then all of the daily life, the smells, the sounds, the sights, all of those sorts of things were really culled out of years and years of research notes and little snippets here and there. And I needed to use them as a kind of a seasoning or an accent. And what I discovered was a little went a long way. And also that uh, I needed to constantly say to myself, okay, if this, if this novel was set in the present, would I be taking the time now to stop and describe that cupboard? Yes, I can describe what, you know, a storage cupboard for dishes look like. But if this was 2009, would I be doing that? And the answer was usually no. And so I that went back into the file tubs for another occasion. I've still got lots of research that I haven't used. So Now, this novel has, again, uh, all the same supernatural elements transposed into the past. And I'd like you to talk about transposing those elements into the past made in terms of how which historical uh, figures were created, recreated by you as which types of creatures, and, mm-hmm. and which must have been a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. In Discovery of Witches, what I did was to think about the ways in which being a demon or a vampire or a witch could shed light on sort of characters I'd encountered in my life, fellow academics or people that I saw at the symphony or or whatever, and think, oh, well, it would explain a lot if that person was a demon by my definition or a vampire. And so I did the same thing for 1590 and thought, okay, well, who, who are clearly human? 
Shakespeare, number one, clearly human, not a demon, not a witch or vampire. Didn't just didn't seem like it to me. Um, Marlowe, clearly a demon. He was on a different wavelength. The whole that was his problem in life was really the reason why, you know, he had such challenges. And it just became one by one of thinking through, oh, that must be uh, that would explain a lot if if this was a demon. And of course, that would have to be a human. And and it was, again, through that process that then I got to then play once I figured out how they fit into this spectrum of creatures. Um, I got to play from that point. Now, I have to ask about a character, a gallo glass, mm-hmm. because I re- once read a, a wonderful Ruth Rendell novel mm-hmm. with that title. So tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about creating gallo glass. So gallo glass. Well, gallo glass is one of those words. It's just a great word. And it is a word that has a very old pedigree that exists, you know, well outside of the Ruth, Ruth Rendell story. Of course, one of the things I like doing in both Discovery of Witches and Shadow of Night is playing with other books. So I loved having Gallo Glass as a character, but I also wanted to remind people who might have forgotten that to be a Gallo Glass was it was a thing. It was it was a profession, and a Gallo Glass was a sort of uh, Irish Scottish warrior. Um, uh, it was a, the Gallo Glasses were mercenaries. They were a very elite group of soldiers in the late medieval and early modern periods. There's actually a wonderful, wonderful Durer sketch of a Gallo Glass that Durer saw a Gallo Glass in early 16th century London. So there's a beautiful 16th century sketch of one of them. Looks rather like Gallo Glass, I must say, in this book. And uh, this, they, they really, they lived by a very strong moral and ethical code of the mercenary. They um, were really the, the prized bodyguards of the kind of the Celtic part of, um, of what is the United Kingdom in, in the medieval period. And that just really appealed to me, this idea of this sort of there's Norse blood in them. They come from Scotland. They come to Ireland. They become this elite warrior class. And to think that they were still around in the 16th century, that the vestiges of that system were still around, was too good for me to pass up in terms of a vampire character. I have to say, though, that Gallo Glass comes into this, came into the story in a very unexpected way. There was no plan to have a Gallo Glass in my story. And I was writing that chapter, and literally in my head, I heard the crash of a door against stone, and, I, and two men walked in, and I thought, who are they? And I thought, well, one of them's Welsh, and maybe one of them could be this gallo glass kind of person. And from that moment on, they, I couldn't get rid of them after that. So no plans for them. They were a wonderful accident. They were, they were really fun. Now, one of the things that's really fun about this book is the time travel aspect because there's we get little glimpses of the present and they certainly uh, plot-wise slot into what's happening in the past. So I'd like you to just talk about a little bit about your notion of time travel um, as, a, as a plotting device. Mm-hmm. Time travel really is um, a challenge. I think, for people who decide to embark upon it, especially in a kind of with a kind of enthusiasm rather than coming from a strictly theoretical position on it. 
And it offers up so many possibilities. But one of the things that I became really interested in is the way that some people's concepts of time are about how really anything that could have conceivably ever happened is happening somewhere already. And that every time something happens, a whole new set of possible realities opens up that can be also existing at the same time. And so for me... um, that's where the decision to have this interplay between past and present came from, was the idea that somehow, as in the theory, as soon as you set off one chain of events, it causes this sort of spontaneous branching and affects, you know, what those possible outcomes could be. And I wanted to sort of explore, okay, how could Matthew and Diana be having an impact? What kind of impact would it be? their decision to branch to to force this new branch uh, of reality by going back in time how would that then start to cause a ripple down the years and uh and it was a nice way of sort of reminding readers i think and reminding myself that while Diane and Matthew are in 1590 life is still happening elsewhere things are happening and and just as their entry into 1590 was a little bumpy. Their re-entry into the 21st century might be a little bumpy, too. One of the things that we, we get in this book is we get to see the characters develop and grow together in a variety of manners. Mm-hmm. And this must have been very satisfying for you because I think one of the things you did in the first book that was commendable and really nice was that there's a certain... It was kind of chaste in the romance. Mm-hmm. And I think you keep that up to a degree, but you also take it to the next level. And mm-hmm. I'd like you to talk about pacing the action that's happening on the ground with looking for stuff and being in the past and figuring it out, and also pacing the, the character interactions between Diana and Matthew. Yeah. I, I think a relationship is really a process by which you come to feel that you can be totally honest with another person, or at least that's how it should be in an ideal way. And in the first book, in Discovery of Witches, Matthew and Diana have frankly only known each other for a blink of an eye for 40 days. And because he's a 15-year-old vampire, and for him 40 days really is the blink of an eye, relatively speaking, you know, he's a little reluctant to accept that, yes, you know, the human sense, I love you, I've fallen in love with you, let's just get on with the rest of our lives. He's, He's understandably, and I think characteristically, a little bit more reluctant. But as they spend time in the past, and Matthew is forced to face his own past, to share that with Diana, it's possible for them to take their relationship to the next level, because he's not hiding. In the first book, Diana is kind of hiding from who she is. What we have less of a sense of is that so is Matthew. And that hiding just isn't possible given the given the situation that they're back in in 1590 and there's very specific catalysts that make it impossible and uh, and that was really important that again that that relationship felt real and that I could really imagine a 1500 year old vampire taking the very serious step of setting up a, a, a permanent, attachment not not a relationship that he knew would be a, would you know be a fleeting thing but really saying you know you are the one you are 
my mate, my other half. I don't think after 1,500 years you do that lightly. So uh, that had to feel real. One of the things that I think makes this book such a pleasure to read is the toe-tapping plot line with regards of when they find themselves back in 1590. I mean, Matthew's being a vampire is the least of his issues. He's many other things at once. And the um, the politics of the time are so complicated, and he's embroiled in every aspect of them um, up to and above his eyebrows. Mm-hmm. So talk about developing all these wildly divergent plot lines with regards to what's going on with the politics. Everywhere they go, it's completely different and it's completely threatening. Well, I think for a lot, you remember how a lot of us, when we look back on the past, it all, you know, we'll look back in our college years and we remember the high points and certain very dramatic low points, but we probably couldn't give anyone an accurate day-by-day rendition of what you did in October, you know, during your sophomore year. Matthew's in that same position where he's thinking back, I've got this covered. Did it once. I know what's going on. I I got through it once before. It's not going to be that hard. And again, what I wanted to show was, yeah, you know, really? I had a professor at Mount Holyoke say to me once, just as much happened on any day in the past as happens today. It made a huge impression on me that life was complicated and multi-layered and challenging and problematic in 1590. And because he survived it once and it was a long time ago, he's forgotten just how complicated it was on the ground. So for me, it was so much fun to think about what would have been complicating his life, what would have been making him pull his hair out. And thinking, oh, yeah, that was happening too. So And being able to, to sort of uh, put that layer in. And again, it goes back to that same feeling of wanting to make a book that really felt authentic to me. This book feels like 1590 to me. And I'm a historian of 1590. And I'm sure I got some things wrong. I tried not to, but I'm sure there's going to be an expert in some aspect that pops up and says, actually, you got that wrong. But nevertheless, it feels right to me. And so often when I read historical fiction, it doesn't feel right because it doesn't have that kind of layering of complexity in quite the same way. So that's because they haven't been doing it since 1982. (laughs) So, One of the things I think that is so interesting about this book is the way that you layer in the history and the character development and give us a, a story that's really compelling. So I'd like you to talk about some of the, one of the things that you bring back is the manuscripts. Thank you for the Voynich manuscript. <laughs> have you have you seen it? Have you touched it? I am probably the only John D. scholar in the world who has not touched the Voynich manuscript. I've only ever looked at images of it. I am fully intending to go to New Haven this fall and see the Voynich manuscript and hold it. But yes, uh, the Voynich manuscript, like Ashmole 782, wherever it may be, the Voynich really exists and we know where it is. So that's bonus points there. Uh, Talk about uh, slotting in documents into your plot. That's That's a challenge. Yeah. But as a, it is a challenge, but it's no worse or better a challenge than slotting Queen Elizabeth into a, into it. I think 
again, Discovery of Witches and Shadow of Night are both books about books and the power of books. Books are hugely important to me as a scholar. And I think uh, it's important to remind ourselves of just how much books have mattered and continue to matter in the world and in politics. So a book like the Voynich Manuscript, which, you know, has got so many theories about it, so many mysteries associated with it, so many urban legends. It's nice for me as a historian to sort of say, okay, this is this this manuscript was here. And this let and 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 again, just like putting making Christopher Marlowe a demon, getting the Voynich in there and making it work through this plot line and explaining maybe how the book ends up being here, there, and everywhere in the period, because maybe Matthew Claremont carried it in his luggage back and forth, um, was enormous fun for me as a historian. As a student of supernatural fiction, I was happy to see the ceremony with bell, book, and candle in there, which, if I'm not mistaken, the was not bell, book, and candle a, a book upon which the TV series Bewitched was... Based. I, 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 you know, it's. I always think of that wonderful movie with mm-hmm. Kim Novak and, right. and Jimmy Stewart and the cat named Pie Wacket. Uh, you know, uh, that I think uh, I remember seeing that movie and think, wow, witches are really glamorous based on Kim Novak. They were never in my mind sort of little old ladies uh, with, with, with bad hair and a stooped spine. But, uh, but yeah, I, I again, I, I try to think about where, you know, I l- researched the legends about the bell, book, and candle. What were the symbols associated with it? How could that work in the story? What might be a ceremony, a kind of a rite of passage ceremony that could be used in in the in the book, um, because so much of Shadow of Night is about sort of rites of passage and coming to to understand who you are, and so um, I I have to say I made it into a sort of a a, a kind of a Wiccan bat mitzvah to use a very strange uh, set of uh, of terms together, but a kind of that somehow the bell, book, and candle were used as a rite of passage in in uh, magical families, so. You have a lot of fun developing the magic in this book, too, as we get to see how it was practiced back then. Uh, Talk about advancing your magic in the past, which is an interesting uh, challenge. Yeah, well, I I had a lot of fun thinking about Diana's magic and how that magic might work and what maybe was the secret that somehow her blood was keeping and how that could feature into the story. And I think of all the parts of of the the book, um, working out Diana's magical system and her mag- magical legacy was really the most exciting and the most fraught for me. I didn't have a terribly de- well developed sense of what Diana's magical potential would be in Discovery of Witches. I kept kind of bracketing it and and moving away from it and glancing off of it because I think in my own head I I, I had a hard time figuring out how it would work. It was easier for me to imagine how it might work in, in the 16th century simply because their worldview so bad, much supported the idea of a kind of an elemental magic and drawing on the power of nature all around you and how that how that could function. So for me, being back in the late 16th century was, was a kind of important uh, breakthrough in terms of being able to think about it what she might be and how it might work. Can, what can you tell us uh, about the 
the following book. Do we know the title yet? We do not know the title. Titles are always a, a very vexing business because I might have a title in my mind, but it may not be one that the publisher is terribly happy with. And uh, so, and and what's worse is that if I sort of blurt out what my working title is, it gets fixed in people's imagination that that's what the title of the book is. So um, even in my own draft. It just says book three on the title page. So we do not have a title. The third book will begin right where the second one leaves off and pick up the narrative right after the events following Shadow of Night. And uh, writing a third book in a trilogy is... um, it's proving to be a very interesting puzzle. It 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 is, all it is much more architectural a problem. It really requires that you have got a really firm grasp on what you've still left up in the air, what you need to resolve. You need to figure out how you're going to resolve it in a way that's consistent with the characters and the storyline. So I've been doing a lot of thinking and drafting and drawing and mapping and diagramming of um, the third book and begun the process of writing it. So that's a really good sign that I needed to have all that in place before I went off to promote Shadow. And, and I'm, I'm sort of exactly where I thought I would be, which means that when I get off of tour, I'll be able to sit in my, in my office and boot up my computer and hopefully my fingers will just start flying because it will have been kind of marinating in the back of my, uh, of my consciousness for these many months. One last thing I want to ask you is, you've written two books about vampires, uh, witches, uh, the the 16th century. I mean, these are kind of dark matters and, and magic. And yet, one of the things I really enjoy about the writing is that it's kind of uh, it's light. It it's fun and it's not dark and broody. Even though you've got a vampire who you might try to describe as dark and broody. It doesn't come off that way. Mm-hmm. And I, I love the way that you manage that. Could you talk about uh, mm-hmm. pulling some the, the dark and broody, just getting rid of it and making something that's enjoyable and full of texture? I, I, I never thought of these books as fitting into a genre. I was just telling a story. So I didn't have a lot of genre conventions that I was working within. And and so one of the things that really intrigued me when Discovery was published, and I think will intrigue me with Shadow of Night, too, is finding out where people shelve it in bookstores and libraries. I've seen Discovery of Witches in the horror section, the mystery section, the thriller section, fantasy, young adult, sci-fi. And I think if you're working within a genre, if you think to yourself, this will be a thriller, therefore it needs to have this mood and this element, it can be enormously useful. It would certainly give a kind of a coherence to this plot and the story. But because I was only ever writing fiction, it really was possible for me to just follow the characters and the plot and not worry about whether it fit neatly into any of these boxes. So hopefully, um, again, it allows for um, a more kind of complete experience, uh, a sense of of a coherence that's larger than just a genre convention uh, in the books. And certainly, um, Matthew may have his broody, moody moments, but I think 
the Matthew at the end of Shadow of Night has uh, come out of the darkness a little bit and is a little bit more hopeful about the world and his place in it. Well, I would suggest that you're a genre unto yourself. Well, <laughs> gosh, what would that be called? Well, no, I don't know. Do you mean a whole section? Shadow yeah. of Night. Yeah, the the historical vampire fantasy sci-fi. Yes, it goes on and on. But right. uh, I think I think genres have done a huge amount for helping readers find the kinds of books that are going to make them happy. I also think that you know people say to me, "Well, what, what, how do you classify your book?" And I say, "Fiction." That and sounds that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> I've been speaking with Deborah Harkness. Her first book was "A Discovery of Witches." Her new novel is "Shadow of Night." Thank you for joining me, Deborah. Thank you so much, Rick. It was a pleasure. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.